Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. Let the pastor finish that. Let God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, welcome and thanks for being here today. And I'm excited to kick off a series that we've kicked off before. And this is the Me and God series. If it looks kind of familiar, if it sounds kind of familiar, then that's okay. You're not losing your mind. We did this back in the fall. Uh, We looked at this series for about, I don't know, like six weeks. It was fairly long. We ran out of time because we were up against Christmas. And so we just cut it off. And now we're coming back to it with with four more weeks. And basically what this series does is it takes us to... um, basically one of the fundamental, most primal questions that human beings have been asking as far back as we can remember. You know, along with, you know, the what is the meaning of life, why am I here kind of questions have always been the who is God kind of questions. Now, in in our day and time, in our little uh, sphere, there's also the people that say, you know, is there a God? And that's a big question for us. But for most people throughout most of the world today and throughout history, The question is not, is there a God, but who is God? It's assumed that there is one. And we were just considering that who is God, and and if there's a God, and and we've kind of learned a little bit about Him, then well, what does He have to do with us and our lives? And that's really the big questions that we deal with. Everybody, when they think about God, they want to know who is He, and what does He have to do with me? How involved or uninvolved is He with my life? What should my relationship to this God be? be like. And God knows we ask these questions. So in his, in his word, through, from front to back, you know, even though it was written by a bunch of different authors over the course of thousand years plus that it was written, he's sprinkled in all these metaphors, things that describe for us our relationship with God. And none of these metaphors in and of themselves describe the whole picture. But they each give us a glimpse. Now we would prefer if God just spelled it out for us, right? In black and white. And just told, here's how it is. But with God, it just, our minds wouldn't wrap around it. You know, if we could figure out God, what kind of God would that be, right? That's kind of the whole point of being God. He's kind of beyond being able to figure it out. And so he gives us, though, these these word pictures, these metaphors that help us understand something about what he's like and what our relationship to him is like. And so, you know, last fall we looked at things like, you know, he said that we're kind of like the clay and he's kind of like the potter. Or that we're kind of like branches and he's like a vine. Or, you know, we're kind of like a sick patient and he's like the doctor. Or, uh, you know, he's, we're like citizens in a kingdom and he's the king. And, and so we looked at all these different metaphors like that. And we're going to just pick back up today with one called Redeemer. That he's like our Redeemer and we're kind of like debtors in need of redemption and you know it's funny that because if if I just said we're going to look at the metaphor of redeemer you wouldn't consider that to be a metaphor that's just a title for God right we we use it in songs we we just talk about God being our redeemer 
So what we need to do first today, before we can really go much further, is consider what did that word, what did that word picture of God mean to the first people that used it? Because for them it was a metaphor for something that they were very familiar with. And so we've got to go back a long ways, even way before Jesus. You know, if Jesus was walking almost 2,000 years ago, this is like almost 3,000 years ago. Uh, This is before even King David was alive and wrote the Psalms. In fact, we're going to be talking about here at the start, just so we can wrap our minds around what a Redeemer meant to the first people that used it. We're going to be talking about his great-grandparents, King David's great-grandparents. And uh, before we even do that, just let me give you some context right off the bat. When, you know, Israel was delivered from Egypt, that's famous, the Exodus, you know, it's been made into movies and everything. So that's famous. We also, so you know about Moses and, and how Moses then, he gave the law to the people, this lawless people, this people who had never been really their own people. And now they're handed God's way of doing things, God's law. Well, one part of God's law that we don't talk about a whole lot is found in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. If you ever want to look at those, it's the, easy to remember. It's the same chapter number. It's just two different books, Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. And these are two books of Moses' law. And in this chapter 25 in each, he talks about what's become known as a family redeemer. Sometimes you may have heard it called a kinsman redeemer, if you've ever heard of this concept. And the way it worked is God, in his countercultural kind of way of doing things, always looking out for the poor and the disadvantaged, he put this kind of clause, if you will, in, in the law that said, if a person, you know, an Israelite person, ended up having to sell themselves into slavery because of a debt, or they ended up uh, having to sell off family land because of a debt, or if a woman was widowed and had no sons or, or husbands, then husbands, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Even for Old Testament times. But, you know, if, if that was the case, then a person from their family would be able to redeem them. They could choose to redeem them. So they, what that would look like is they would, they would buy the land so it stayed in the family. They would marry the widow so that she could have a son and continue the family line. They would buy this person out of servitude. You know, that it was the right of the family members to do that, and that was good for the family. You know, it kept the family stronger and that, and that family lineage. Now, this is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. I mean, we all get that it would be nice to get bailed out of debt, or if we had to sell ourselves into servitude, we'd really like it if someone would come along and get us out. We get that. But I bet there's some widows in the room right now, in our room, that are saying, if one of my husband's in-laws came and wanted to marry me. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> you know, we don't really like that idea. You know, and similarly, we don't really get the land thing. You know, if you've got to sell some land to get out of debt, then sell the land, right? And get out of debt. Uh, so that part of things is maybe a little harder for us to wrap our minds around. But just consider for a moment the different culture, the different time, where, man, family was everything. Your lineage was everything. I mean, a woman's sense of self-worth in that day was tied almost 100% to her ability to bear sons. Not just, you know, not just some male chauvinistic thing, I want some boys, give me some boys. But this was how the family went on. 
This is how the family lineage went on, and that was important to her. Also, this is how she was going to be provided for in her old age, was her sons. Because it was the men who worked and earned a living in that day that worked the land. And that brings us to the land part of things. That's how you earned a living. And that land was passed from generation to generation. It was family pride, but it was also family income. If you lost your land, you lost a lot. You lost, it was like a curse on your family from generation to generation if you even got to continue having generation after generation. So these were a big deal. And we're told a story in the book of Ruth about two ladies who really kind of ended up in a perfect storm of those situations and ended up in desperate need of a family redeemer to come show up and make a way for them. And the, it starts off with this guy named Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech. <laughs> now that's a name I didn't think about when we were naming Peter. But, you know, it's may not, maybe you know someone who's going to have a boy. and You could pass that, that one on to him. I mean, it rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Elimelech. I mean, it just has a, has a sound to it. So anyway, Elimelech and his wife Naomi left Israel with their two boys because there was a famine in the land. And they weren't earning enough income. You know, we know what that's like. People leave a, you know, the job situation in Detroit just bottomed out at one point, right? So a lot of people just left their homes, their nice homes and everything, and just went somewhere else. So in that day, that happened a lot too. And so famine struck, and they went to the nearby nation of Moab to earn a living. And in that nation, their boys grew up and needed to take wives. And so they took Moabite wives, because that's where they were living. But then disaster struck. First, Elimelech died. And then both sons died. So here's Naomi in a foreign land with two foreign daughter-in-laws and no one to provide for them. So she decides the only shot she has is to go back home where she's hopefully got a little bit of family left and they have a little bit of family land left and just see what happens. Pray for a miracle. And one of her daughter-in-laws decides to go with her. She can't convince her to stay. And that girl's name was Ruth. So Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Israel. And, I mean, times were hard. I mean, they didn't have a whole lot of options on the table. A lot of times, if women ended up in that situation, the way that, you know, I mean, ultimately they could sell their land and get some money for a little while. But sooner or later... They're going to have to do something desperate. And that might look like Ruth prostituting herself to earn a living. That was the reality of that day. And so first they try something else. And she says, Naomi says to Ruth, go into the fields. Because this was another thing that God's law provided for. Is that impoverished folks could go and, you know, rather than, you know, God said, when you, when you harvest your field, don't go back and pick up every little thing. Leave the stuff that's left behind for the poor people. And so... You know, Naomi says, this is the way we do things around here, Ruth. So go out into the field where they're working and gathering the grain. And gather what you can for us. So Ruth's out there and she's doing this. Now this is a risky job too. Because here you are, a single woman, all alone, going out into a field where a bunch of crude guys are working the fields, right? It's not an not a optimal situation. But God was with them. And she found a field of a respectable man named Boaz who was also a family member, an extended family member of theirs. And he saw her and looked out for her and told her guys not only to leave their hands off of her, but to look after her. 
give her a little extra. And so they kind of build this little relationship where he's looking after her. He's, he admires Ruth for sticking with her mother-in-law. And, uh, and so over time, Naomi hatches a plan. Maybe a long shot, but we're going to try it. He's shown favor to you. So what I want you to do, Ruth, is go in when they have their big harvest party and, and they'll fall asleep in the barn probably and with, the, with all the grain and everything. And, and so you just go in and at Boaz's feet, just lay yourself down at his feet. Now that sounds probably weird to you. And, and Boaz was kind of surprised when he got up too. But not probably for the same reason that you would be because this was a cultural thing for them. That's what you'd do if you wanted to serve somebody. And so she was saying, I want to serve you. And, and it's, you know, a string attached probably, you know, assumed that she's basically begging him to be their redeemer, their family redeemer. And when Boaz wakes up and sees her, he has so much respect for her and what she's trying to do for her mother-in-law. And I mean, she could have stayed in Moab and married some guy. She could have gone after a younger man. Boaz a little bit older. But she came to him and asked for him to be their family redeemer and said she'd be willing to serve him. And he put his cloak around her. That was another cultural thing. To say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you one way or another. Now this is one in the point in the story where we find out that there's another relative there. And this relative is first in line to be the family redeemer. Maybe he's older or maybe he was a little bit closer relation to Elimelech. And so he gets the first shot at it. Boaz says, let me see what I can do. We'll take care of you one way or another. And he goes off to the city gates because the city gates, that's where stuff happened. <laughs> that's where all the men had to, you know, come to conduct their business and and so he just kind of hangs out there at the city gate until that other guy comes along. And what's funny is we don't have his name, and, but in the Hebrew, I'm told that it just calls him so-and-so. <laughs> so they just left that out. He wasn't important enough to get a name. He doesn't get a name in our Bibles, but we'll call him so-and-so today. So so-and-so comes walking along, and Boaz says, hey, so-and-so, come on over here. And then he calls around some other guys. I need some witnesses here. I need some witnesses. So he, he kind of gets this whole huddle of them. You know, there's like 12 or 13 guys here in, in a circle. And he says, now so-and-so, you know about Naomi's situation and all that. Uh, she's got some family land that she's going to have to sell because they're in a bad way. And, and so I was going to give you the first chance at, since you're first in line at, at redeeming, you know, being their family redeemer. And he says, oh, that sounds good. I'll buy it. Yep, that works. And Boaz says, oh, but one more thing. There's a young woman too, and so if you choose to be their family redeemer, you're going to need to marry her so she can have some sons and keep the Elimelech's family line going, you know, because that was important in that day. And that guy said, Whoa, <laughs> no, no, no. And so maybe, maybe he had enough woman trouble at home. <laughs> he didn't want to bring another young woman in, stir things up. Or, you know, maybe he had enough heirs already and didn't need to spread the pot any thinner than it already was as far as the inheritance that he was going to have to pass on to the next generation. And so he passes, and he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. That's an interesting way of doing business, right? Before there were credit cards, there were sandals. So he, he passes the sandal over and, and says, it's you. And in front of all these witnesses, I'm saying you can do it. You can be the family redeemer. And so Boaz marries Ruth. The land stays in the family. A son is, is given, is born to them and oh my goodness you can just feel the gratitude and the joy just oozing off of Naomi as she was so close to disaster 
And listen to what her friends say. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name become famous in Israel. Now in this passage, they're actually talking about the son. Because not only did Boaz redeem them, they were further redeemed by the birth of a son. Because Boaz, being older, he's going to die sooner or later. But then that son is going to be able to take care of them into their old age. And their family line is going to go on. So this is just huge. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. She looked after him. And you can just feel the gratitude, the relief. Man, they were so close to complete disaster. And God redeemed them out of the pit that they almost fell into. Gratitude is something that's just about extinct, isn't it? Seems like it. I remember, this was 12 years ago, I remember I, I was actually doing an internship thing, kind of like what Ed's doing here this summer, and I was in Jackson, Mississippi at a church there. I was helping with music and youth, and one day some, a family took the youth, some of the youth out on their boat on a lake, and we were just enjoying, having a good time. They ran into a, some friends of theirs that were also out on the lake, and the friends offered to have us come over on their pontoon, a few of us, and, and ride on their little inner tube thing that they had hooked up, and so... We kind of split up and some of us went over there. So keep in mind here, with a couple of youth and me, I'm sitting on these people's pontoons. It's a friend of a friend kind of thing. We're complete, we don't know them from Adam. So here we are and this spoiled brat of a youth sitting next to me, 15 years old, entitled to the world apparently, just speaks up and says, hey, can I have your cookies? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, these people we don't even know have offered us the use of their boat isn't that enough? You know, now you're going to start poaching their cookies? And to top it off, he didn't even say thank you. I had to say thank you for him. And this is, you know, sometimes you're just like, are we that entitled <laughs> that, that we just, you know, well, the whole world is mine, so give me the cookies. <laughs> you know? Unbelievable. Uh, but if we're honest, gratitude's kind of our big problem as humans, especially as it is with God. Our the ultimate thing kind of behind the fall of man is, is that we didn't give God the credit that he deserves. We either gave it to other stuff or we took it for ourselves. And you can't tell me that you've never had a moment where you wanted to steal all the glory for yourself. You know, you hit the home run, you aced the test, you know, whatever it was, you got the promotion. Ooh, yeah, I'm good. And sometimes we also have a tendency to to give credit to things before we even give it to God. You know, like, well, it's the, the money. I, you know, I've got all this money and it gives me the life that I enjoy. Or I've got these connections. So I have this life that I... It's the food that satisfies me. It's the romance that gives me pleasure. It's the stuff. It's the things. We also see this when, whenever we get angry about not getting what we deserve, what we're entitled to, Right? And we see a friend who's got, you know, the perfect family by all appearances. The, you know, the beautiful wife and the beautiful kids. And they all get along all the time. Makes you sick. <laughs> and you know you're a better person than they are. Why do they get the life that you deserve? And so we have this problem as human beings with 
this whole gratitude thing. So I think we need a better understanding of just how indebted we are to God, just how much we needed His help and how much He helped us, what a high price He paid. And that's nowhere clearer than in this metaphor that we're exploring today of God as our Redeemer. Because see, God gave that law to the people that said, someone in your family can redeem you from these tough situations that you get yourself into. But it didn't take long for Israel to draw the connection between this family redeemer thing that happened in their lives and what God had done for the nation of Israel. In fact, you know, Ruth had that son, named him Obed. Obed had a son, named him Jesse. And Jesse had a whole passel of sons, and the youngest one was a little plucky shepherd boy we know as David, who became king of Israel. And when he did, one of the things he mentioned as he prayed to God was, who is like your people Israel? And one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself. He said he redeemed them from Egypt. So it didn't take long for the people to realize that what God had done for their nation was a redeeming work. That they, their life was in the pits. That they were enslaved, literally, in Egypt. And he redeemed them out of that in a powerful way. But it also didn't take long for them to realize that they needed redeeming from more than physical slavery. That there was a spiritual slavery that was causing them all kinds of trouble as a nation. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied this way. This is God speaking in a future sense of what He wants to come, what He wants to happen for His people. He says, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I've redeemed you. Sing for joy. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer. And the people begin to long for a Redeemer who would not only throw off the chains of enslavement or oppression to Rome or whoever the latest ruler was over them, but also from their spiritual slavery to what we call, in the Bible calls, sin. And along comes a man named Jesus who said, I have come to give my life as a ransom for you. To be that redeemer you've been hoping for. To redeem you not from Rome, but from the real enemy of your souls. And in 1 Peter, a letter from the Apostle Peter, written to the church, he says, and we read most of this just a little bit ago, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear, in reverence, in respect during your time on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter points out two things that he feels like 
should overflow and out into a response from our living, our life, a life of gratitude and respect for God. Two things. One, he wants you to know what you were saved from. He calls it your futile way of life that you lived in before. It takes a dose of humility just to accept how you lived before Christ. The depth of the depravity that you were rescued from. We have to wrap our minds around that if we're ever going to be truly grateful. And the other thing we have to wrap our minds around is the price that was paid. Not silver or gold like a family redeemer would use to rescue someone like Naomi and Ruth. But precious blood. This isn't like your mom and dad went and bailed you out when you got yourself in trouble. This isn't even like, oh, man, you needed a kidney transplant and someone gave you one. This is more like someone gave you a heart transplant. They gave up their life for your life. And not only that, but more than that, this is the person you rejected that got you into this mess in the first place and they chose to give their life to redeem you. That's the power of this picture of God as our Redeemer. It's almost unthinkable that He would do something so great for us and pay such a high price for us. And it indicates how deep our debt was that it took such a high price to redeem us. Deeper even than we understand or know And here's, if you get nothing else today, here's what I want you to get. That the magnitude of your gratitude should match the depth of your debt. The magnitude of your gratitude should match the depth of your debt. Everybody try saying that together, alright? The magnitude of your gratitude should match the depth of your debt. How deep was your debt? How deep was your debt? I think this is one of the biggest problems that we face as Christians, especially as Christians who've been Christians a while, especially second generation Christians and beyond. Is anyone in here would be willing to own that they're a second generation Christian? Anybody with a show of hands? That, or maybe you're more. You can put your hand up. That's all right. How about third? Fourth? Fifth? <laughs> can you keep track that far back? I was, uh, I'm a sixth generation just in the church of God. <laughs> And I don't know if beyond that, if my ancestors, any of them were Christians before they were saved as part of the church of God. But we can trace back that far. My grandmother's great-grandmother was a, you know, came and became part of the church of God as it started in the 1800s. So, you know, I feel like I can speak with some authority on, on the challenges of being a second-plus generation Christian. And one of the challenges that we have is... Well, there's actually a leadership principle that applies to it. And the leadership principle is this, that time in erodes awareness of. 
time in erodes awareness of. And in this, you know, they teach it in leadership because when you first come to lead a company or a church or whatever the case may be, when you first come to lead it, there's, it's instantly obvious what needs fixing there. The problems are obvious to you. But the longer that you stay there, the less obvious it becomes. Because it, it's just like you, you experience this all the time in your home. You experience it here. This is the reason why most of us no longer even notice the cluttered wheelchair in the corner back here. <laughs> Because it's just there all the time. And, and time in erodes awareness of. You'll may, you may notice it today. <laughs> Same thing at your house. Right? There's like a cluttered or dirty spot. Like somewhere tucked away. Maybe your guest bathroom. Or somewhere you don't normally go that often. But it's just always there. <laughs> and you're always in your house. And so you don't notice it anymore. Until someone's coming over. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa. <laughs> time in erodes awareness of. And for Christians... Time in this faith thing erodes awareness of the depth of our debt. And so this is a huge issue for us because we, as second plus generation Christians, we come at this thing, you know, and we see these people with their faith stories of, man, I was a rebel, I did this, you know, I was dealing drugs to children and, you know, now I'm saved and I don't do, you know, it's these amazing stories and they obviously are overflowing with gratitude and passion Man, I wish I had that. We struggle sometimes to have an appropriate amount of gratitude that matches the depth of our debt. Because for a lot of us, you know, God's way of living was handed down to us. Now, our rebel days were, you know, that time we stole a stick of gum and got whipped for it. You know, or told a lie to our parents and, man, after they got done with us, we didn't want to do that anymore. And, you know, and so they... They raised us up in a, in a better way of life. And so we don't have this story, you know. I mean, maybe we rebelled for a few years and we came back, but it wasn't like that big a deal, you know. And so we have a hard time sometimes realizing how much gratitude we owe to God. So how do we, how do we deal with that? I mean, the first thing I want to say is to consider this. What if God's way of living hadn't been passed down by your parents to you. You know, however far you've got to track back, you know, for me, what if my great, 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 whatever, <laughs> hadn't left their old way of life and the depravity of it and started living for God. And then they passed that on to their next generation and the next generation and the next generation. But what if they hadn't? And what if instead they'd gotten deeper and deeper into sin and then passed that on to the next generation? And they got deeper into sin and then passed that on to the next generation. What if that had happened instead? Where would I be? And the truth is, I know enough about the sinful nature inside me to know who I'd be or to have a pretty good idea of it if I hadn't been trained up the way I had been trained up. And chances are, I'm guessing that you know, too, a little bit about who you'd be. You'd have a guess at who you'd be if you hadn't been raised up to live God's way. So we need to dispense with this notion that, well, I'm so much better than everybody else, I don't, I don't guess I owed that much, or I owed as much. Because but for the grace of God, 
you'd be in just as bad a shape as the vilest sinner you know. Isn't that true? So what do we do practically? Besides just man, trying to wrap our minds around this, that our debt is so much deeper than we realize, and, and the price paid was so much steeper than we realized. And yeah, we can try and wrap our minds around that just with understanding and just thinking through it. But practically speaking, what can we do to grow in our gratitude towards God? To understand the depth of our debt and the steepness of the price paid better. And I want to suggest one practical thing you can start doing today. Is you can start practicing the discipline of confession. What I mean by that is Spend time when you pray, literally asking God to show you what still needs work in your life. Because I've got news for you. (laughs) You ain't perfect yet. And neither am I. And when we start wrestling with what still needs to be more Christ-like in our lives, we'll come to a better appreciation of just how much redeeming we needed. And so practice regularly. And I don't mean, this isn't like a, forgive me for my many sins. Okay, I did the confession part. Move on. Because that doesn't help you much with this. What I'm talking about is getting specific with God. Looking at your life with God and saying, what needs work? Okay, I, had a, I have a really bad attitude problem in this situation. And confessing that to God and, and repenting from it. Asking Him to, by His Holy Spirit's help, to put that attitude to death. We're going to get into more of that next week. So if you're, if you're interested in, in what, you know, what we need to do to deal with this issue of sin in our lives, come again next week. But man, start, start practicing and growing in this discipline of confession. And as you do, you're going to grow in your gratitude. As you realize how much God has forgiven in you. The price that was paid. There's a, one more story I want to tell you today. Today's been kind of a, a day of stories. <laughs> one day, Jesus was having... I guess lunch or dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, if you know much about Jesus, you know him and Pharisees didn't always see eye to eye. That's putting it kindly. It's kind of surprising that he was even there, I guess. He was more likely to be found in some sinner's house than in the religious people's house. But on this day, he was sitting in a guy named Simon, who was a Pharisee, not Simon Peter. Don't get it mixed up. Lots of people named Simon back then. Like John nowadays or something, I guess. Simon the Pharisee's house. And he's reclining there and they're eating and they're visiting. I don't know how she gained entrance. There's some things about that culture that's still hard for me to wrap my mind around. But as they reclined and they you know, reclined around this table and were sharing this meal. You know, Jesus is sitting there with Simon and they're visiting. And this woman comes of ill repute 
And she starts just worshiping and loving Jesus. And she pours out perfume on him, expensive perfume. She's weeping, and her tears are making his feet wet, and she doesn't have a towel because she didn't come there to do foot washing. She came there just to anoint him. So she just grabs some of her hair and starts drying off his feet. And Simon is about to throw up. He is sick to his stomach. And he's thinking to himself, if this guy knew the kind of woman that was... I mean, this was altogether too much touching and carrying on for Simon the Pharisee. Couldn't believe this was happening in his house. Jesus says to Simon... You know, Jesus is notorious for this. Just, uh, hey Simon, there, there was a guy that he loaned some money to these two guys. And Simon's like, what? We're having a crisis moment here at my lunch table, and you want to talk to me about some parable. Okay, Jesus, what do you want to talk about now? And Jesus says, well, there are these two guys that well, they were in bad shape, and so this guy loans them money. And one of them, he loaned 500, whatever the coins of that day, a lot of money. And the other one, he loans 50. A lot less money. And these two guys, both of them, ended up where they, they couldn't pay it back. And this master that had loaned this money forgave both of their debts. Now, which one of them do you think loved him more for doing that? And Simon's probably rolling his eyes. The guy that got 500, of course. <laughs> What's the point of this? She's still here. And Jesus says, You're right. And he says, You know what, Simon? Since I got here in your house, you haven't shown me an ounce of kindness. And yet this woman has poured out expensive perfume on me. You didn't even wash my feet, which is a custom. And yet, she's washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. Because the thing is, Simon, those who have been forgiven much love much. And those who have been forgiven little love little. It's not, I'm sure Simon thought that he was about as devout as you get especially compared to that woman at Jesus' feet. Of course, Jesus knew different. But what mattered was his perspective. See, Simon had little to no gratitude to God because he didn't think he needed much forgiveness. Whereas this woman, and her sins were many, understood that her sins were many. And it overflowed in gratitude. And friends, when you and I realize how much we've been forgiven, we'll start looking a lot more like that woman in a heap on the floor before Jesus' feet than we do like the guy that's sitting there like he's got it all together. Too often that's how we sit around, like we've got it all together. Because when we compare ourselves to people like her, 
We think, well, you know, we've got it together. But when we come to truly see the depth of our debt and the price that was paid by our Redeemer, then is when our gratitude starts matching up with our debt. And our response, you know, like Ruth, who laid herself down at Boaz's feet, we lay ourselves down at Jesus' feet. Out of gratitude. Because we understand a little better what it took to redeem us from the depths to which we had fallen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for these metaphors and what they mean to us and what they teach us about our relationship to you. And I thank you so much for not leaving us in debt, but ascending a Redeemer. I'm so sorry for the times that I, for the times that we have not shown adequate gratitude to you. Holy Spirit, help us to understand a little better, to wrap our minds around and our hearts around the depth of our debt and the price that you paid. And we'll worship you. We'll give you glory. You alone are worthy. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.